Okay, let's look at Proverbs 25 and verses 6 and 7. They're going to go up on the screen. It says, Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence, and do not claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to say to you, Come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. Now, when Steve gave me this one, I thought, hmm, is that it? I mean, in a way, should we just go back into worship? You know, very useful little bit of advice. If any of you get invited to the Queen's banquet or to the Royal Lord Mayor's banquet, do take this in mind. Make sure you go to the right place setting. That's it, then. Right, praise the Lord John. Um, (laughs) So, what do we make of this? Well, fortunately, I think Jesus helps us. Because, interestingly enough, Jesus re-emphasizes the same truth in a very similar way. And so we're going to look at Luke 14, verses 7 to 11. That will also go up on your screen. And you will see that at the end, there is a bit of a punch to it. And Jesus probably helps us to get what's really behind this rather gentle bit of social etiquette, it looks like, when you first read it. So this is Jesus, Luke 14. When he noticed, Jesus, how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person who disting- more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. Next screen. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." And that last verse is where Jesus touches the deeper meaning, which is behind, actually, the Proverbs as well. Certainly, if you look at some of the other Proverbs that talk about the same subject, that actually, this is looking at a much deeper issue. And Jesus sums up, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Although this is an illustration of something that would have been more common in Jesus' day and indeed in the day when Solomon wrote and others wrote the Proverbs, which would have been a great feast and an invitation and not place settings that were obvious, and people who sat a little bit according to where their status was, and uh, people would like to sit near the top table and would want to be right up by the important people. And there's a sort of challenge in it there, but behind it, there is a much deeper challenge, which is about measuring yourself well, as we put the title, understanding what it is to be truly humble. It's better to be humble than humiliated. And we want to learn a bit about that. Now, we don't get quite so much on the banquets today, although you do get wedding feasts and things, but usually there's quite clear uh, place names, so you don't make any embarrassing mistakes and sit where the bride and the groom are supposed to sit or something like that. But, but actually, there are plenty of status symbols in our day which people attach great worth and great importance. Probably it's obvious to all of us, but let's remind ourselves. It can be rather important which car you drive, 
what type of car or even what age or year. Where you live can be a status symbol. It can be very important. Which brand of goods you buy and wear and uh, make sure the branding is obvious in some cases. The clothes you wear, the people you know, yeah, and to some extent the parties you go to, the social events you're invited to can all be a cause for pride, a cause for feeling I'm the right person or I know the right people. Now, the problem is almost universal, but the details change with the subculture. And sometimes we can be in one subculture, maybe young or a little bit edgy culture, and think, ha, 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 this is all very middle class. It's not. It happens everywhere. But in a particular subculture, the actual parameters of this are different. You know, who you know, or what you're wearing, or what uh, events you go to, or, or what music you listen to, can be a sign of status that you're someone important, that you know the right things to do. You can exalt yourself with those. And as I say, they will vary. So that in one subculture, there'll be certain things that I wouldn't even hardly know what we're talking about. But in, in the areas I move, I, I, I know what the status symbols are. So it is a little complex in its outworking, just as here in the Bible. We don't all get this stuff going on at banquets a lot. But the problem is universal. Because actually, the problem is pride. It's exalting ourselves, being much more concerned with what people think about us than what God thinks about us. And that is a huge issue. And I know it's an issue in my life, often at times. When I was preparing this and thinking about it, uh, I, I realized that I think as I'm getting older physically, but as I've grown as a Christian, as I've matured, I think I've got this a little bit more over the years. I haven't got it right all the time, but I think you realize it is much more important what God thinks of you than what people think of you, and that you really need to not be so worried about people's impressions as what God's impression is and what God's saying and doing. And I think that is a fundamental thing to get hold of. I hope we'll touch it a little bit as we talk through this this morning. But actually, the bottom line is this parable, sorry, proverb and Jesus' parable are challenging us about pride. So let's ask this question. We've just got a couple of questions. I like to ask and sort of answer them. Why is pride such a serious problem? Let's just think for a moment because In our culture, in our world, most people would say pride isn't a serious problem. In fact, people see it as a good thing. So when people uh, were endeavouring and still endeavouring to really rebalance culture's views on gay issues, they will have marches called gay pride. Now, we're projecting something. We're saying this is something we're proud of. And actually, pride is not seen, it's not like something you are embarrassed to boast about, pride. And quite often, a lot of our, um, uh, almost our attempts to help people with self-worth and all sorts of ways, is almost to teach them to be more proud of themselves. We, we actually don't think pride is a problem. And, and when we, I think it's slightly changed nowadays, I understand, but when we have secular funerals, up until a few years ago, the most popular song was Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. 
non-Christian funerals. Much to say, I did it my way. I, nobody told me what to do. You know, and, and people think, well, that's wonderful. That's what we want to celebrate as the person uh, is, is sent into the furnace, basically. So, um, so actually, pride, surely that's okay. Well, it's not okay. And let's stop for a moment and just work our way through this one. You see, actually, even thoughtful people in the world have recognized over the centuries that there's a bit of an issue here. The Greeks, who were very thoughtful people, actually, had a word called hubris. And hubris refers to excessive pride, which leads to a sort of exalted self-confidence and which nearly always ended up in nemesis in Greek tragedies. Now, nemesis was disaster and collapse, and it was seen as the retribution of the gods on excessive pride. And they recognized that there was a pattern you could observe in life, that arrogance and self-confidence, excessively self-confident, often took you beyond appropriate behavior into chaos and destruction. People who think they are always right. And that can be a lot nearer to home than we think. People who think they're always right, that they are better than anyone else, that they are above the rules that others have to play by, that they can call it and they're okay. If they get like that, they nearly inevitably end up in trouble, ultimately. Maybe very successful for a long while. I've been reading, this is the sort of thing I do sometimes to relax. I don't think Marion will ever understand it. Probably half of you won't. But I've been reading Anthony Beaver's book on Stalingrad, which is actually quite harrowing in places. So it's about the Germans and the Russians fighting for Stalingrad in the Second World War. And actually, it is a superb example, Hitler, of hubris. So he is so confident that he's swept through Europe and everything else that he thinks he can take Russia on, and he piles all his super troops in there, all his panzer divisions, and he is convinced, and and his generals begin to shake a bit, because they realize there's like hordes of Russians, they're just happy to die, it seems, they just throw themselves around, and there's the Russian winter and everything else, and he just, he's just, nobody's allowed to bring any negative talk into his room, nobody's allowed to say, we might not be getting this right, we might be unwise, no, 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 we are the third right, we're going to win, we always win, we're going to win, and you know, we're going to take Stalin, and in the end, it's destruction and disaster, and it's probably one of the big turning points in the Second World War, And, and you realize, that that is very common in life. You can see it on the big stage. Dare I say it, it was true amongst our banks and our bankers at the beginning of this century. We can do anything. We can play our own rules. We make as much money as we like. It's good to be greedy. Let's go for it. Pride, hubris. And then in the end, 2007-8, terrible collapse. It is something you can see very much around you in life. But you know, actually, there's something even more deep here, and in a way, a bit darker. There really is. It is not an exaggeration to say pride is the root of all the evil in the world and all the suffering in the world. What? Really? Yep. And I'm going to take you on a little journey, if you don't know this, to show you why I say that. Pride was first manifest... This arrogance, this pride in yourself that I am the top dog, nobody else, nobody can call it for me, I call it as it is. Pride was first manifest 
in the most beautiful and wonderful created being. I emphasize a created being, not the creator, called Lucifer, son of the morning. And uh, he was a guardian cherub. Now, don't think of cherubs as little fat boys with no clothes on, a little couple of wings. These are the super angels, the cherubs. They are the highest created beings. By the way, I believe in angels and I believe in demons. And I think they're utterly real things. We just don't see them all the time. But they're active. And, and, and so he's created as the guardian cherub, one of the, probably the two or three key highest angels of God's created order. And in a couple of places in the Bible, they're quite rare, but they're there. And Christians over the centuries have recognized clearly what they're about. There are insights into what went wrong, prehistory really, what went wrong in the heart of Satan, Lucifer. Now we, now we call him Satan. What went heart, wrong in his heart? Here's a little taster of it. Let's look at Ezekiel 28. It'll go up on the screen. Trust me, this is how we often as Christians interpret it. It's set in a prophetic setting, but it's speaking about a demonic power behind an earthly power. And it says this, you were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. This is God speaking prophetically. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. What a mysterious way of putting it. Yeah, God created a being with the potential for sin, but it seems like sin was incubated in this beautiful being. What a strange, fascinating insight into the truth about the fundamentals we often think about. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Let's go on, the next verse. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth, I made a spectacle of you before kings. Now that's one insight. Here's another one from the prophet Isaiah. And we put them together to get the full picture. Here's Isaiah saying a similar thing about a spiritual king or force behind Babylon. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Look at this. You said in your heart... I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And in the next verses, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Saffron. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now, some of this is obviously picturesque, prophetic language, but there's an amazing insight. Essentially, this is what went wrong. A beautiful created being who doesn't acknowledge that actually God made me and I belong to God and I'm here to serve him, but begins to be proud of their beauty and begins to say, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above all the other stars. I will sit where God sits. I will make myself like the Most High. I will do it my way. And no one else will call it for me. I will do it my way. I deserve better than anything I've got. I need to be better than I am. I seem to have lots of good things, but I want more things. Now, this being is an insight into Lucifer, Satan. Took, fell from heaven and took with him 
a third of the angels who were all under his uh, leadership, I guess, because he was a senior figure. And I believe these are insights into spiritual realities. Now, this creature becomes the serpent in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, he speaks to Adam and Eve, and he infects them essentially with the same disease. Let me talk you through it. We won't need to read it. He says to Eve, in effect, God is keeping back on you. He's, God is holding out on you. There's some better stuff you could have than what you've got. You deserve better than this. You deserve to be like God, to know good and evil. God knows that if you do what he's told you not to do, you will be like him. That's what God knows. God knows if you break his rules, if you take no notice of him, you'll end up like him. You'll be gods yourselves, able to do what he does, tell other people what to do. And Eve looked at the fruit and she saw it was good to eat. She saw it says it would make her wise in a way like God. I guess she thought, and Adam thought as well, it will improve our position. What are you talking about? You're in paradise. You've got everything, but there's a few things you haven't got, and you want them. You want to not have to ask God what the right thing to do is. You see, in that setting, it was out of relationship. They walked in the garden with God. How beautiful picture that God would walk as a friend with them, and I think they discussed with God how they would rule the earth, how they were meant to develop this beautiful planet he'd given them, how they were meant to spread the garden out from Eden across the whole world, make it a beautiful garden, make it their own kingdom. God said, you'll be like God's here. I want you to rule it like I rule everything, you rule this. I've made you in my image as my children. But no, that wasn't good enough. We don't want to have to walk in the garden with this fuddy-duddy old God. We want to decide for ourselves We want a higher place than that. We will decide right and wrong. They forgot, like Satan forgot, that everything comes from God anyway. He made us. He gave us the whole thing. None of this is ours. It's his, and we're stewards of it. Now, actually, do you get it? There's a lot under here that's much nearer to home than we think. We're looking back into things that are mysterious and things that are high and almost beyond our understanding, but we see it and get it. But we're also tracing a, an infection that comes right into our hearts and right into the world that we live in. 1 Peter 5, 5 tells us, God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. Pride blocks you off from God and, worse still, invites his opposition. That's pretty serious. That's what this sort of pride does. And it doesn't just apply to dictators, to prime ministers, to kings, to demons and angels and Adam and Eve. It applies to all of us. Look at these verses, this verse, 1 John 2, 16. It's how the world works. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So the world we live in breeds the very attitude that Jesus is touching on and and Solomon's touching on in Proverbs. This attitude that I want to look good and be good. I want to go beyond where I am. I I should be recognized more than I am. People ought to serve me or do do better by me. People, there's a pride of life 
which drives things along with lust of the eyes and the lust of flesh. And it's a destructive thing, ultimately. It brings us into conflict with God, and it brings usually, like the Greeks saw, its own destruction, because God opposes the proud. The Greeks did see something that was real. God brings, has built in a sort of judgment in it, and you often see it again and again. So what is the answer? Let's move on. What is the answer to the pride problem? Well, the answer is wonderful. The answer is the gospel. And we're going to find that Jesus helps us to understand how the gospel is simple, and yet it's profound. And, and the simple, simplicity of it is challenging to all human pride. Here is a lovely parable by Jesus, told by Jesus, which sort of sums up what I want to say. So we're going to read it and briefly notice what he's teaching here. So this is Luke 18, and it's going to come up on your screen. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, see who his target, target audience is, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Ah, yep, he's highlighted some really obvious sins. Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Good boy. Next one. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You might have spotted the same line. (laughs) Jesus has got a real message, and he's banging it home. And he keeps banging it home. Now, you will, most of you know that a Pharisee in that time when Jesus spoke about it was a high sort of religious figure, highly regarded in Jewish culture in the first century, devout, high-standing religious figure. A tax collector, on the other hand, who would probably have been Jewish, that would have been part of the pain of it all, would have worked for the Romans. He'd have been seen as a traitor working for the, the uh, ruling uh, army of oppression, the Romans. He would have worked collecting taxes, which is not popular anyway, but it was particularly difficult for him, or good for him, whichever way you looked at it, in the sense that he was backed up by the Roman army, so you couldn't fight with him without hitting the power of Rome, and he was allowed to collect, listen, whatever he wanted. He could collect as much money as he could get away with. He had to give a certain chunk to the Romans. So Romans might say, we want a million pounds every year from Winchester. You're the tax collector for Winchester, As long as you give us a million, you can collect as much as you like, and the Roman army will back you up. So he could collect two million, keep a million for himself, and give a million to Rome. Rome's happy, and if you argue with it, you'll have a knock on the door, and it won't be very nice. Uh, And uh, so they were hated, and they were greedy, and they were villains. And Jesus has deliberately chosen this man, because this man who didn't tick any boxes in first century Israel, in terms of goodness or acceptability or right behavior, gets it right. Because before God, he says, oh God, be merciful to be a sinner. And he means it. 
And Jesus says, that man goes home justified before God. I mean, it is outrageous. It is controversial. And it's really true. He says, because that man realizes he needs God's forgiveness and mercy. And he humbly comes. He's not proud of himself. He's saying, oh God, I don't deserve anything. Please forgive me. The other one, who is a sinner as well, he's full of all sorts of greed and pride, but he is so full of himself, he's so pleased with what he's done and so eager to compare himself with everybody else and really thinks, actually, I do pretty well. There's not many here who are uh, better than me. And so he feels that God's got to accept him, and that's no basis with coming to God. Nothing works with God like that. This man went home justified before God, the tax collector. Now, justified means made righteous. It actually means cleared up from all debt. It's a word of before a law court, you're justified, you're declared innocent and clear. This guy goes home justified because he asked God for mercy. And that is the core of the whole gospel. Now, I know you know there's more detail to it. You need to know that. Jesus was able to teach this because he was going to carry our debt. He was going to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Someone was going to pay for our sin and it was going to be Jesus. But from our side, this parable is gloriously simple. The cost is paid by Jesus, but you only benefit when you humble yourself. And you say, oh God, be merciful to me. I don't deserve anything. And you know, if you can't say that, you have a huge problem getting near to God. And I mean, some people even today would say, well, I'm not that bad. No, don't, don't, don't go down that road. You're worse than you think you are. Don't try and persuade God that he's got a good deal if he was nice to you. He knows he's got a stinking deal and he's dealt with it. And he wants you to say, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when you say that, God runs to you. Like the prodigal son in another story who comes back and says, God, the father, I've sinned against you. I've made a mess of it all. And the father runs. The other son is, I've been with you all this time and blah, 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 and you haven't given me this, and you haven't given me that. And he's outside the party. It's there in huge letters. The gospel is gloriously free grace for those who will turn to God and believe in Jesus and receive it humbly as mercy undeserved blessing. Now, someone has said pride is the great cloud that blots out the sun of God's generosity. I think it might have been N.T. Wright. I don't know. Some commentary I was reading. Pride is the great cloud that blots out the sun of God's generosity. It does. If I Listen to the logic of this. If I reckon I deserve to be favoured by God... Not not only do I declare, I do not need God's mercy, grace, and love. That's what I'm saying. I deserve to be favoured, so I don't need his mercy, his love, and his grace. I also imply that those who don't deserve it shouldn't have it. It's a terrible place to be. If I think I deserve, God deserves, I deserve better from God, whatever your position, then you're beginning to blot out God's grace and generosity and mercy, the sun is being blotted out because you're saying, I don't need grace and mercy, I deserve it. And then you're implying that other people who don't deserve it shouldn't get it, which is exactly what happens in this parable. But we need to learn to be dependent on the grace and mercy of God. And here in my last section, 
we need to understand, brothers and sisters, a lot of us in this room may say, well, I think I've got that, I'm saved. Well, yes, you need to remember it. Don't lose it. Because we need to live like this. We live dependent on the grace of God. Let's talk finally. We talked about the gospel. Here's another thing that's the answer. Life in the Spirit is the answer to pride. Galatians 6, which we'll go to in a moment, just a couple of verses. Galatians 6 verse 1 tells us that the verses following are addressed to those who live by the Spirit. And if you read Galatians 5, you see there's quite a lot about living by the Spirit. And in that context, these verses are written to Christians, like you and me, many of you anyway, who are filled with the Spirit and trying to live by the Spirit. So this is verses 3 and 4, if we could just pop them up. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. We'll leave that verse up for a moment, thank you, Jess, because I want people just to have it in front of us as we unpack it, because this is written to Christians. This is written to people who are living in the Spirit, who are ongoing in their outworking of their faith, and actually have embraced the gospel and are now living, hopefully, in the light of the gospel. It's possible to deceive yourself. That's scary, isn't it? Verse 3 tells us that. It's possible to be self-deceived. And actually, self-deception is the worst form of deception, obviously. But I think self-deception is mostly caused by pride. Pride is the most vulnerable area for self-deception. Because you begin to think it's all about you, and you deserve this, and you're better than X and Y, if you start comparing yourself to other people, you begin to build yourself up. It's very, very easy to do. I speak as someone who has had to lifelong battle with it, if I'm honest. I'm not, I wouldn't have said I'm a naturally like proud, arrogant person, but I, there's a battle in there all the time. And I think in my own life, it comes out in quaint, quirky ways which are more to do with, we might, we use this nice word insecurity, I use it. Insecurity is a modern sort of jargon for pride, quite often. Because what you do is you feel not very confident yourself, so you compare yourself to other people, and you begin to think, well, actually, they're not very good either. And that, that hasn't been, oh, that's quite nice, that went wrong. Ha ha, that's good. That, and, my, and you begin to do all this sort of stuff, and you're basically building yourself up by looking at other people and all sorts of things. But if you strip away all the language, it's a bit of pride. It, and it's, these verses are really like a little scalpel right into our heart just to expose it and deal with it. If you think you're something when you're not, you deceive yourself. You're nothing. You don't deserve anything. Any one of you in the room. So you come up and say, I deserve a better life than this. And I bet you some of you have got some pretty serious things that you've had in your life which are quite distressing. So I'm not being flippant. But I can say to you, you don't deserve the grace of uh, the, the love of God and the grace and mercy of God. It's a free gift. You don't deserve any of it. You think, well, I'd like a bit more. Yeah, you can say that, but you don't deserve what you've got. Do you know what I mean? Do you understand it? You've got to start. You think, I don't deserve any. I deserve hell and judgment. I deserve the, the wrath of God and I, I've, I've been forgiven and free. Now, anything's a bonus, it's all a bonus. Now, there's lots of bonuses. 
I can preach that and have preached that other day, so I'm not being negative. But we need to start from the point of view is actually, you don't deserve anything. <laughs> actually, don't think you're something when you're not. You're not. Got your little hand to God. He created the whole thing. He's been around for millennia and he'll be around. He's no beginning and end. He's the creator of all things. He didn't have to do anything for you. He really, really didn't. And he really did amazing things for you. Now, that really is a very powerful releasing thing to get. If you get that in your spirit, that won't grind you down into nothingness. That releases you in an amazing way. So don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. It then goes on to say this. Look at the next verse. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride. So the word pride's in there. It's interesting, isn't it? Pride in themselves without comparing themselves to someone else. Aha. So actually, there is a justifiable form of pride. There's a something that's not wrong. It might be satisfaction, might be a nicer word, but pride is okay. It's an okay word. And what it is, is this, that you don't compare yourself at all with anybody else, either better than you or worse than you. You test yourself before God. So you are genuinely doing work in your own heart Why do I do that? What's my motivation? God, is it for you and to please you? Or is it for people and to impress them? Or think? And you, you work away at it. You test your own action. That's not, that's not a, a, a trivial thing. There's something you do. You think, why am I doing this? Is it for the praise of men and women? Is it out of fear of man? Do I do it out of fear of people? Is it for status? Is it for worth? Is it because I hope to be spotted and promoted? Or is it a genuine desire just to serve God? That sort of thing. And this is saying to us, we need to all the time be testing. As regularly as you would test any good piece of equipment, you need to test your motives. Because if you can say, no, I'm not comparing myself to anybody else. I'm just doing this for you, Lord. I believe you've called me to it. I'm trying to please you. I've got a clear conscience before you. As best I know how, this is why I'm doing it. Then there can be a pride, a satisfaction. God, I'm secure in what I am. I am secure. I'm secure in who I am. I know, what my, I know your love. I know your forgiveness. And I am secure in you. And I can go forward on that basis. I don't need men and women to bestow honor on me. The honor that counts from you. Because I tell you, in the kingdom of God, honor should never be presumed. Which is where this prophet is talking. You don't presume honor. I need... Honor is bestowed. God does that. Others do that. You don't presume honor to yourself. That's no place in the kingdom of God. That's bestowed by others, God and others. You just serve. Service is more important than status in the kingdom of God. Status is of no importance in Jesus' kingdom. Service is of great importance. That we serve the king of kings. It's an honor. It's amazing that we're even allowed to do that. That we're even able to join with him in these things. And if we do this work properly in our hearts, not comparing ourselves to other people, but testing our actions before the living God, then I think we are genuinely able to be secure in our daily life. We're able to not worry about whether we get recognized. Do we get the, the, the brownie points we want? We know we're a beloved child of God. We know that we're pleasing him. We're secure that he loved us and saved us and freed us from our sin. And we want his well done, good and faithful servant. I think that is what I really want to hear, Lord. I want to hear your well done. And, and, and I know that if I stray into pride and, and comparison, I compromise getting that. 
And that's what I want. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, when you get this, this is true freedom. It's really, you are free to say yes and to say no. You're free to sit with a king or sit with a pauper. You're free to be recognized or not recognized. Being recognized won't inflate and go to your head, which is a huge temptation. Being not recognized won't lead you into bitterness and criticism, which is another huge temptation. Because you are secure in God. You've tested your heart. You've tested your actions. You're not thinking about other people. You're thinking vertically only, not horizontally. And out of that, you are not troubled by many things that would trouble us otherwise, many things that stress us even and disturb us. It is a great freedom, and it's available to all of us in Christ. Amen? It's where God's taking us. It's where the grace of God will take you. And actually, the best response to the grace of God is constant gratitude. Goodness me, I'm grateful. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you. I thank God for, I think, for my health, my where I am and, you know, my family and things like that, which are obvious things, but be grateful for them. And, and they won't, you say, well, I haven't quite got some of the things you've got. No, but thank God for what you have got. Don't compare yourself. Oh, John Groves, I wish I was a church leader like you and bald like you. That'd be really nice. No, no. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't look compare yourself to others. Yourself before God. Be grateful. God, I'm thankful. Most of all for Jesus and all he's done for me.